Good evening, so good to share your company again. Welcome back to the Gallery of Curiosities. I remain, as always, your humble host, Osgood. As I mentioned at the end of our last episode, I'm going to be continuing with the war exhibits a little bit longer, and I must admit, this one is going to be a bit of a grim one. So, if that sounds like more than you wish to bear, do come and visit us again some other time. Things do tend to stay dark around here throughout the winter months. Our author for this evening is Mr. George Edwards Murray, a writer from Maine who currently resides in the heart of Steel Country. His fiction has appeared or is forthcoming in Daily Science Fiction, Bourbon Pen, and other venues for strange and troubling stories. You may discover more on the web at elegantapocalypse.com. It will be read for us this evening by Mr. Michael Whitehouse. Lady with a Thousand Teeth by George Edwards Murray Read by Michael Whitehouse And in those days when we had such things as blue skies and moist earth, when the forests were verdant and there was such a thing as meadowland, in those days of life untampered, I found Louis standing at my doorstep, wanting to see the lady with a thousand teeth for a third time. The two times before did not count, he said, because the first time I had dawdled, I was speaking with Mrs. Bolling's daughter, Francesca, trying my hardest not to let my eyes wander down her dress, and we arrived to see the caravan folk packing up for the night. The second time, so many townspeople crowded the lady's tent we could barely see her at all. So the third time Louis came to my door, he came with hungry eyes glinting, his jocund face red and mischievous and shadowy in the cracking dawn, and he all but forced me from my house through the streets and into the fields where the caravan dwelt. There was nothing else for me anyway. The university was still shut down, awaiting the breakout of peace, and until such a time we were to sit patiently at home and wait for our numbers to be called. As if the stocky generals at the front sat in their tents, jackets gleaming with the sheen of medals and honours, saying to one another, what we really need is a first-year student of ancient languages. And in the meantime, I would watch from my window the machinations of my hometown, once comforting, now torpid after my taste of the metropolitan life. So we walked to the north that morning as the sky began to turn. 
Louis, just ahead, his coveralls caked in layers of earth and sweat, puckish grin deforming his wiry orange beard. Myself just behind, buckled leather boots swishing through the bending savers of grass. The air smelled of spring, still burgeoning and timid and perfect with my nose and lungs, and the hot rays of sunshine warmed my skin and hair, and all the world seemed interlocking and fitted. These were the days in which there was such a thing as springtime. When we reached the caravan, the tents were bright and dewy with morning sun. The people of the town milled between the wagons and stands and in and out of the tents while the travelling folk, purveyors of the entire spectacle, looked on, smiles pointed and dart-like, eyes calculating, arms wide and perpetual gestures of invitation. Look here, look here, and see incredible feats of impossible strength. Behold the cabinet of freaks and malformations. Madame Thistle's tent of erotic delights. You've heard all about it. Now see it. While I looked around and marvelled, Louis did not so much as turn his head. Occasionally he would grab my shoulder and steer me with one weathered paw whenever my attention wandered. Hey there, I said. How about Madame Thistle's tent? You couldn't handle it. How about the feats of strength? That could be interesting. Louis pointed to a cut above his eye, surrounded by a lake of bruised flesh. What? Like what the old man showed me last week? No thanks. We're not leaving without seeing the lady. Up ahead, all manner of townsfolk departed the lady's tent, chatting, smiling, clapping each other on the shoulders, as if the chaos and heartbreak and desolation of war lay not just beyond their borders, and they were safe. Looking back, I don't blame them. The mask of normality fell away, only after it was all over. We paid our fare and went inside her tent. The air buzzed with chatter and the bustle of skin on skin, people pushing and craning to look. Louis cut a path forward, his burly miner's body an ice-breaking ship, me the minnow in its wake. When we reached the front, he slammed his hands on the rickety wooden railing there, kicking up curls of sawdust and whistled. Take a gander at that, he said. I had already seen enough the second time we went, but I humoured him and cast a glance in the lady's direction, thinking of all the delights we were missing in Madame Thistle's tent. At that age I was only interested in one thing, and the lady had a cloth skirt wrapped around her waist, so I couldn't even see it. The cloth was her only garment, but her breasts were so encrusted by her affliction that they were hardly worth looking at. Between the shifting and rotating spindles and gears and coils, I sometimes caught a glance of areola, or the swell of a heaving, fleshy breast, 
but so fleeting it could not excite me. Louis, though, he looked her up and down, quaffed her with his eyes, watched as the gears embedded in her flesh moved in and out, as the cogs in her knees spun, moving her feet in mechanical rhythm. He pointed out to me her arms, outstretched, nestled within the copper plate in which she was embedded. The plate itself fastened to an upright metal framework, like a living painting. Her limbs dripped with springs and wires and gears, such that she seemed an iron moth, crucified for some unholy collection. We watched as she danced without moving. Her skin swelled and morphed, and the complex machinery passed over it and under it and through it, penetrating it and becoming one with her flesh, a metamorphosing amalgam of woman and machine. When the gears in her neck spun, they parted her dark lips and forced open her jaw. Louis and I stood on our toes, to see down her mouth, observing the glistening saliva-covered gears gnashing their teeth in the back of her throat. Lightning bolts of scar tissue ran from the corners of her mouth, where the skin had been stretched from the force of opening, and one of her eyes was a copper gear that twitched clockwise every second or so. The other eye was brilliant blue, like the sky in those days. The townsfolk passed through and gaped, or else laughed, or gasped at her circumstance. Then they moved on, the peculiar clockwork of the lady a forgettable distraction as they ventured outside for other beasts and wonders. Louis made us stay for hours. Throughout the day I occasionally left, wandering among the other tents. I did not muster the courage for Madame Thistle, and when I came back, there he remained. He did not leave to eat. We lingered there until long after the others left, beyond nightfall, until the barker came inside and threw a tarp over her and squawked at us to leave. As we walked back home through the field, now blue with moonlight, and the stalks of grass now crisp with nocturnal coolness, the night-time insects floating like motes of dust in beams of moonlight, Louis's eyes were aglow. He asked questions I could not answer, about whether she could be removed from her metal prism about whether she had gears too down there under her skirt. He asked me if I thought she had a heart. I would be more worried about her throat, I said, trying to joke. My stomach was upset. I didn't like to look at the lady with a thousand teeth. I didn't like seeing how she worked. Her complexity and beauty and uncanniness made me feel like a child. I shuddered when I thought of that one blue eye, vibrant and unblinking in turbulent metal seas. Louis laughed. He punched me in the arm and said, Don't make jokes outside your element. 
everyone knows the women at university won't play the flute without a contract signed in triplicate. We laughed and joked the rest of the night, and he did not mention again the lady with a thousand teeth, but all during the trek back into town, he kept looking over his shoulder to the darkening tent on the horizon. The capital sent an envoy each month, a chipper-faced adolescent in a glittering carriage of silver. The town would gather in the square, thousands of us packed into that space, our feet wedged in the cobblestones for hours as the mayor lectured at length about patriotism and duty. Then the envoy would step to the podium, mauve cloak whirling at his feet. He would read the news from the front, and always it would be a chain of victories, and we would applaud, and then the envoy would read aloud a list of names to join the brave men and women in the battlefield. So our victories may continue, he would always say. I knew them sometimes. The people called away. It was like watching a dream of my old life. Familiar faces placed in the bizarre context of war, given spears and applause. Mr Miller, the mustachioed butcher with no neck who lived just below me, and Elise, whose last name I had forgotten, who had shifting eyes and wringing hands. She kissed me by the town fountain when we were young. Doreen, some baker's daughter, who sat on her balcony each morning and clucked her tongue in disapproval in the early mornings we went north to the caravan. Each of them hauled on stage and applauded and given armour and a spear and carried away. Every time I prayed, I would hear some proclamation of final victory or else a ceasefire, anything to reopen the university and take me away from the dull place. Sometimes I prayed he would read aloud my name just to be free of the place. But the war raged on and the university remained closed and I was apparently unfit to conscript. Louis, too, was never called. The organs of war are iron and fire and both are born of the mines. They needed him working. I thought of this often while perched in my window, one leg dangling above the little street that ran next to my room, that the earth would hide beneath the face of grass and trees the raw material of our undoing, as if to punish us for penetrating its surface. I now realise that it was not punishment. The trees and grass and animals are a veneer, and fire and violence are the earth's true nature. One day the envoy came with a parade, military men and women in silken skirts and medals and gleaming pikes. We applauded and little children wielded swords of wood and tossed flowers plucked from the northern district. When the last cymbal crash echoed through the square and all the soldiers stood at attention, some wizened magistrate, his face as loose and sagging as his pompous robes, assumed the podium. He assured us of oncoming victory and bade us look upon our fellow citizens, glorious soldiers all. He lectured about sacrifice and duty and all manner of empty words, and when the time came, 
unfurled his scroll and ran a hoary finger up and down its length and spoke the names of the men and women who would leave for combat. When he was done, there was silence, and I knew Louis would find me that night. The bottle dangling from Louis's fingers glinted red and ochre in the dying light of sunset. He took swigs as we walked, not talking, letting wine dribble into his beard and down his chest. After draining the bottle, he flung it into the field and belched and pointed to the tent up ahead. Maybe they'll let us under her skirt. They won't let you. We should go to Madame Thistle's tent, I said. Louis shook his head. Nah, let's see the lady with a thousand teeth. We walked a little farther without talking. Louis weaved back and forth, putting one quivering leg in front of the other in an approximation of a walk. I finally said, maybe you should say goodbye to your father before he leaves. <laughs> Why should I? Good riddance. You just seem a little upset. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. I still have scars from his switch. All over. He pulled up his sleeve to show me his ravaged arm, but I did not look. I had seen it before. He rolled his sleeve back down and huffed. We just don't know when he'll be back. I don't know what I was trying to say. That the beast who sneered at his son's name left welts upon his flesh was something worthy of pity. Maybe I just didn't like seeing Louis drunk. We were quiet for the rest of the walk. Me in cautious silence, Louis taciturn through drink and rage. All the way to the caravan, his inebriated path carved serpentine waves in the delicate stalks of the field. We arrived and paid our fare and ducked inside the ladies' tent. We walked to the front and stayed there, Louis hanging onto the barrier for support, his knees trembling, his whole body rocking back and forth. Few others were there. When cast against the day's pageantry, the caravan, now in its fourth month of residence, was bland and unexciting. Louis mooned for some time before he turned to me and said, this is how it should be for all of us. He threw a limp hand in the lady's direction. Her head oscillated back and forth and her mouth opened and shut and opened again, wide, painfully wide, and her gears spun in and out of her skin. Everything makes sense when you can see its parts, Louis continued, his words slurring together. One gear turns another, and that gear winds a spring, and that spring coils and uncoils, and it makes her arm move. And you can see it all, and follow it back to the source, and you know what's going to happen, what's already happened, and why it all happens, and nothing doesn't make sense. He leaned backwards, balancing his heels, pulling at the creaking barricade. I bet 
I bet if we cracked open her skull, we could see all the little gears in there and tell what she's thinking. And if we cracked open her chest, we could see the gears in her heart and everything she's feeling would all make sense. You hear me, bookworm? I said nothing. He looked back to her and sighed longingly. Maybe if I touch her, I'll get gears in my head. He careened backward and what little grip he had gave out and Louis, mighty Louis, tumbled to the ground, swearing and coughing. He pushed away my outstretched hands and attempted to stand on his own. I moved back and looked to the lady with a thousand teeth. Her gaze was fixed upon us, her flesh eye wide open and dazzling and hungry, her copper eye spinning. Struck across her hybrid face was carved a toothy smile, crescent-like and stretching from one ear to the other. Her bodily gears moved slowly and made no noise, and neither Louis nor I breathed, as together the three of us shared those minutes of mutual malfunction, immobile and intertwined. And then Louis laughed. She knows what I mean, don't you? He blew her a kiss, as I pulled him to the exit. We stumbled into moonlight and open air as we walked through the scattering of tents and stands. Louis erupted into drunken song. I looked back and saw through the barely parted canvas the gleaming eye of the lady with a thousand teeth thirstily gleaming at me, her dead smile growing all the wider. After that, Louis would show up nearly every morning he was free of the mines, or in the evening following his shift, and he would beg me to see the lady with him just one more time. I always refused. Too harsh still remained the memory of her cycloptic gaze, the rows of teeth more pointed and menacing with each remembrance. It made me sick to think of her, no matter how Louis raved about her transparency and truth. She remained inscrutable to me, she who was an anomaly among the anomalous, unplaced and unwelcome, alien. She who mortified the soul with each clack of her iron-fleshed neck. I refused again and again, and soon Louis came by infrequently, and in the months that followed, he stopped haunting my doorstep altogether. I had hoarded all the paper I could when rumours spread of a ration. I used every sheet I had. I wrote to my professors, asked them if they knew when school would reopen, said that I wanted to enrol a friend as quickly as I could, that I would pay for his tuition if they would just take him. The post had stopped so I asked a local bird keeper for use of his trained pigeons. He stopped letting me use them when one came back, holding a severed finger. My professors never wrote back. All the while the trees grew bright and died and then grew bright again. I tried in vain to distract myself. 
the few books I had from school were not so entertaining upon the third, fourth, fifth readings. I went for walks through town and the forest. I avoided the fields, where still lay the billowing mountains of the caravan. Travel between towns became restricted, so it could not leave. Even if it could, I felt it would not. Not while the lady had one victim. The war crept from the east. Sometimes when I walked and my ear was attuned with the wind, I would hear, so faint and so low, but still there, a sound like mighty thunderclaps, weighted with gloom, mostly at night. I knew what it was, what it heralded. For the sake of my neighbours, I did not speak of it. Soon there hung above the town floating warships, crawling in a west-to-east convoy toward the raucous thunder on the horizon. A line of dots bound for sunrise. The tattered canvas of their ovoid hulls was stained and ripped and bore the faded colours of our homeland. Their names painted on their sides in chipping paint, once fearsome monikers, now impotent with time and use. Throughout the day they trickled across the sky in single file, and at fall of night they became drifting blotches of starlessness. No one talked about them. We traded, we laughed, we sang, but we didn't speak of the line of machinery overhead. The monthly ceremony continued, more and more called to the draft. No more pageantry, no more pomp, a simple list of names read aloud by ageing youth. The weathered souls who stepped forward were quickly shoved aside and carted into darkness. Louis was always at these gatherings. Each time the flesh of his face clung ever more to his skull and the dirt along his arms and legs became darker and coarser. I wanted to reach out and touch him, confirm the bedraggled corpse in the crowd was Louis, my friend Louis, and not some rocking, shambling thing which wore his skin. At one gathering near the end of things, when the sky stayed red in daytime, Miss Florence, who now lived in Mr Miller's old room, caught me staring at the Louis thing. She said to me, They are working the miners very hard, you see. Yes, I've heard, I said, not taking my eyes from the wasting beast beyond. Everyone in town knew Louis had not reported to the mines in months. If his father was home, he would have beaten Louis for laziness or insubordination or any half-formed transgression to explain the sorry state of his offspring. Or maybe he would have simply looked his son up and down and not bothered. Of course it was her. In red dawn and coral twilight and all time and colour between, he stumbled through the streets bottle to his lips, dragging himself northward. I never went out and stopped him. None of us did. No one brought him into a room, gave him a warm blanket and tea and a friendly ear. 
Maybe at the time, it seemed as if that staggering, incoherent mess northward was some small part in a large machine, as unknowable and distant as the warships which had become our clouds. We all were cogs in that machine, happy and spinning until our doomsday. And my part, the switch too cowardly to disengage it. I think that is why Louis continued to attend the ceremony where they culled us for the draft, for hope that someone would switch him off, take him by force to the front where he might be killed alongside our neighbours and never again revel in the presence of the clockwork succubus. But she would not so easily relinquish her favourite cog. On this, the last night, the sky was violet, as was the orchid globe of the moon, and there was not birdsong, nor insect chatter, nor rustle of leaves, and all the world seemed to hold its breath, and Louis was standing at my door, twisted smirk splitting his threadbare beard, hands clutching an opaque bottle, his skeletal body leaning against the frame. Long time, friend, he said, and bared what remained of his teeth. I know. I don't see you at the caravan. He belched and looked at me and raised one eyebrow as if he were expecting a confession. I don't like going down there. He scoffed. Nothing down there's going to hurt you. Not like out here. He took a swig from his bottle and teetered back and forth. Patches of scalp glowed through his once lush red hair. Knobby elbows bulged beneath his skin like tumours. His eyes sat so far back into his skull they were little more than glistening shadows. He looked like a man half-formed, begun by some creator, then abandoned halfway through. When I did not respond, he waved a hand at me and said, Come with me tonight, old friend. I want to have some fun. There's a curfew. Says who? I don't know. There's just a curfew. Oh, I see. They say. He snorted and took another drink. The bottle made a popping sound as he pulled it from his mouth. He wiped his lips on his sleeve and pointed at me. They say I have to dig for coal and ore, but I can't really see my part in all that. So here I am. He spread his arms wide and smiled and stepped into the street and became awash with violet light. And I saw for the first time he had his bag of tools slung over his shoulder. That night the fields came alive in the altered moonlight, just as the clouds above churned and toiled in the amethyst waves, save for the drifting shadows of airships. A hot wind blew, sulfuric, and there were times I opened my mouth to yawn or cough and tasted blood in the air. From the horizon came the thump, thump, thump of war, drawing ever closer. Louis did not speak until after we jumped the fence and crawled beneath the folds of the tent. 
The top was open and the moon blazed overhead, vibrant and luminous, and as we walked to the middle of the tent, we swam in the light of an unquiet sky, and though the envoys and clerics foretold otherwise, I knew that night we trod in a dying land. The tent seemed larger without the curious townsfolk shuffling through it. The edges were mired in darkness, but in the centre, trapped in a beam of violet moonlight, stood the cloth-girded frame of the lady with a thousand teeth. She ticked and talked faintly from beneath her canvas blanket. Louis swaggered forward, dropping his empty bottle, and with a shaky hand sent the sheet cascading into the dust. She was asleep, or at least her eyes were. The rest of her clicked and spun gently, both above and below her skin. Her fingers, splayed at the ends of her outstretched arms, slowly furled and unfurled in time with the machinations of her innards. Her mouth stayed closed. Louis's laughter echoed throughout the place. I did not ask him what he found so funny. Nothing was funny anymore. Not really. He clasped her hand, letting her fingers curl around his. She did not wake. You think she knows what's going on, he said. She probably doesn't even have feelings in her fingers, I said. Just forget her, Louis. That's not what I meant. He stroked her hair, taking care not to accidentally thread it through her machinery. Do you think she knows... About everything. About the war and the envoys and the draft and the mines. Do you think she even knows what war is? Or hate? Or death? Do you think she knows she's in a country? Some place on one side of an imaginary line? I said nothing. After a while, Louis said, huh. I think so too, not taking his eyes from her. He ran an emaciated finger around her cheekbones, brushing it against her sleeping eyes. He put a hand on either side of her head and held them there, and said, I come here every day. They let me in for free, the caravan folk, because they know. They see how she looks to me and me to her, and they see two people who understand. And when she sweeps her gaze across the room, she pauses upon me, because she can hear the gears in my heart, and she knows they are in sync with hers. He ran fingers deep through her hair and turned to me. His eyes were wide and deep and twinkled dully in the shafts of moonlight. In that moment I saw nothing of the friend I once knew, of the friend who saw me off to university with playful teasing and jest, who taught me about women and wine. Louis was right. He had gears in his heart. They were not placed by the lady with a thousand teeth. They were always there. 
the gears that produced the false romance of the simple life, of the glory of war, the gears of a small town at the edges of a war it knew nothing about, but assumed would be decorous and sweet. The lady with a thousand teeth did not place these gears, she only bade them spin. The air became frigid. Louis chuckled as the wind whipped against the side of the tent and the percussive rhythm of artillery grew louder, louder than ever before. Like the approach of giant feet and all the world seemed cast into violence. And at the epicentre was the sleeping lady with a thousand teeth her body quietly humming and clicking and turning. From his bag, Louis pulled a wrench. I need your help, he said, raising his voice over the howl of the wind. Hold her steady while I undo the frame. Then I'm going to get her out of that metal plate and she and you and me are going to go somewhere far away, away from the war, and university, and the mines. He grinned so hard, I thought his jaw would break. He tapped his wrench against his palm, waiting for me to step forward, and the cowardly switch did not turn off the machine. When the frame was off, Louis eased her onto the ground, still embedded in her plate, and then set about undoing the corona of rivets which held her there. She stayed asleep, although her cogs receded from Louis's wrench as he circled around, shrinking into her body in waves, the way one draws away from an open flame. When she was all undone and the floor was littered with discarded nuts and bolts and tabs of metal, Louis lifted the plate and heaved it to one side, and there she lay in the dirt a resting blur, her parts humming and buzzing and spinning round and round. Outside the thunderous din continued like a heartbeat, and I felt each impact shake the ground beneath my feet. Louis did not notice. He lay down next to her and stroked her face and kissed her unmoving lips, deeply, fully, passionately, the little hairs of his beard caught in her movements. He ran his hands up and down her body, found the unblemished skin and caressed it, and the gears in her neck began to wind a little faster. Louis, I said. He continued. I looked away. The sight nauseated me. Louis looked like he was being absorbed. When I could stand to look back, I said, Louis, let's go, Let, let's go and we can talk. We can even run away, but not with her, with anyone but her. He waved me off, his lips still engaged, and I stepped back. The air was cold, so cold, and the wind howled and flung the tent this way and that. The apocalyptic drumbeat of the approaching conquest, now the metronome of our demise. As the world shook and the poles of the tent buckled and swayed and little pebbles leapt into the air, 
Louis continued his congress with the lady, his flesh and spirit intertwined with hers, himself unconscious, shut off, mechanical. Her eyes opened. She smiled and slowly roved her eyes down along her body, ending at her skirt. Then she looked to Louis and then to her skirt. In one motion, he slipped his hand under. For a moment, the two stared at each other, into each other, inches apart, chest to chest. Then her mouth snapped open, gears in her neck spinning wildly, and she moaned, deep and menacing and unbroken like a landslide. Louis screamed. He tried to pull his arm from beneath her skirt, but could not no matter how hard he pulled. The lady's moan continued without a breath or pause, powerful, inhuman. From beneath her skirt came the caterwaul of a million gears whirring to life. Louis shrieked and flailed on top of her, beat at her with his free hand, but she would not let go. The whirring from below stuttered and coughed and choked, and from between her legs sprayed flumes of blood and chunks of bone and meat. Louis' screams were like an animal's, raw. The grinding continued as the hot remains of his hand sprayed all around the place, until he finally ripped his arm away and all that remained at its end was a spurting stump capped by a jagged knob of bone. I staggered backward, bile on the rise, as Louis curled on the ground and whimpered, and the lady, mouth still open and emitting the ceaseless groan, stood, clanking and jerking. Louis's blood flowed down the levers and knobs and switches along her thighs, and though he tried to crawl away, he was too weak and soon she was on top of him, her gears in wild overdrive, bloody and frantic. And Louis shouted, No! It was born of neither pain nor fear. It was not an expletive, as his flesh was ground and his skin became slick with blood, and the wide open smile of the lady with a thousand teeth loomed above him. His cries were of disbelief short and frail, as if his goddess had walked among his kin and bled. And from between her breasts there came a golden coil, twisting outward, unscrewing, and it burrowed into Louis's chest, where lay his heart. He convulsed and choked, and then he turned his head and looked at me with his aged, sad eyes one last time, and he whispered, they are all gears, all the way down. I ran, threw apart the folds of the tent and sprinted into the darkness as the sounds of whirring gears and tearing meat and fracturing bone crescendoed and the ground rumbled and the air roared. From the east came the sound so loud, so loud and frightening that my ears burned. The quake of explosives and cannon fire seemed to rend the earth below and all above, and I could hear the jeers of oncoming soldiers on all sides. Their gears all the way down. I ran, and the fields smelled of fire, 
and the horizon was mottled with brilliant flares of crimson and gold. Our narrator, Michael Whitehouse, is a writer, filmmaker, and voiceover artist from Glasgow. He spends most of his time writing supernatural fiction, though occasionally dabbles in other genres when the story leads him there. You may also hear him on the Ghastly Tales horror fiction podcast and YouTube channel. Thank you, Mr. Whitehouse. Very well read. And by the time that you hear this episode, the fourth issue of Curiosities will be in our souvenir shop, available in the digital and print-on-demand formats. This issue has ten stories set in the jazz and diesel era, and many of you have commented that these are very reasonably priced. I tend to agree. Every purchase helps keep the gallery open, so do buy one for yourself, and then buy several more for your friends. They make splendid holiday gifts for the retro punk in your life, if I do say so myself. And speaking of gifting, I'm not certain exactly what is on the schedule for our next exhibit, as we have slipped behind. If we are getting into our December fair, I do hope that it is not too festive. You do know how I feel about that. We shall see. You should be on your way now, as it's time to close up shop. Do come visit us next time at the Gallery of Curiosity. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under Creative Commons International 4.0 Non-Commercial Attributions No Derivatives License. Our theme song is Ashes Ashes by Deus Ex Vapora Machina. If you like the show, tell your friends and give us some reviews online. And if you don't, well, the lady with a thousand teeth is still out there somewhere. Maybe she likes you too. This episode was produced in December of 2018. For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com. Thank you.